Friends, I hope you can keep that open in front of you. We're going to spend a couple of moments thinking about those verses. Evidently, one of the, uh, the biggest buildings in the world is the, ve- is the Vehicle Assembly Building at the NASA Kennedy Space Center. Maybe you've seen it on TV, uh, there in the distance when they launched the space shuttle. It's the building where they actually put the space shuttle together before rolling it out onto the launch pad. The Vehicle Assembly Building is huge. It has the largest set of doors on Earth. Its internal volume is a whopping three and a half million cubic metres. Now, to put that in perspective, when you leave this morning, if you've never done it before, call in at Bunnings on the way past. Just spend a couple of moments wandering around inside Bunnings just to get a feel for how big that building is. And then imagine another building 70 to 100 times larger and you are starting to get close to the Vehicle Assembly Building. It is so big that it even has its own weather. NASA employees have reported rain clouds forming inside the building on humid days. That is a big building. Here's the thing. Whenever tourists visit the Vehicle Assembly Building and they see it for the first time from a distance, they always say the same thing. They always say, yeah, it's big, but not as big as I thought it would be. Are you sure it's one of the largest buildings in the world? Because I thought it would have looked larger than that. And then the tourist guide always says the same thing. Yeah, it's that big. It's just that there's nothing else around to compare it to. And it's deceiving. Stuck there on Cape Canaveral, there's no other building nearby. Heck, there's hardly a tree in sight. And because there's nothing else around to compare it to, people get tricked. They don't think it's nearly as big as it really is. Do you reckon that could happen between us and God? I mean, we sing songs like we did earlier, He is holy. Do you really get how holy? One of the things that the children are doing at this very moment is singing that one, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Do you really get how big and how strong? I mean, with what do you compare the God of all the universe? What do you compare the God who simply spoke the word and the earth and the sun and every star you see on a night sky, they just all spun into space. Friends, there is nothing that comes close to compare a God like that to. And I wonder if that actually puts us in a bit of danger of just underestimating how big he is. Now, friends, Jeremiah is a book which is all about the bigness of God. It is, in fact, about the tragic mess that Israel have gotten herself into by consistently underestimating the bigness of God. Because, you see, it might be quirky, it might be mildly interesting that tourists underestimate the size of the NASA building, but to underestimate and to keep underestimating the size of God, that can put you in a world of trouble. And my hope this morning, as we're really starting a series on Jeremiah, my hope is that chapter 1 is going to snap us out of any flippancy that we might have towards God. My hope is that this morning, in a few brief moments, we will see afresh the grandeur and the scale of God. Because unless we start to see that, we will not even be at first base in terms of appreciating the privilege and the excitement of you and I being his people. 
Jeremiah chapter 1. And for our purposes, we're going to tackle it under the ideas of the moment, the man, and the message. Three ideas that sort of link the chapter together, and all of which reflect a very, very big God. Firstly, the moment. And by that, I mean the moment in history that the book takes place. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 pointed that out to us. Have a look at it. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah. Now, those sorts of verses, they all sound so academic and detached and calm, don't they? Yet those verses describe perhaps the most turbulent 40 years of Israel's history in the entire Old Testament. This is a time of incredible confusion and instability. For example, the date mentioned in verse 2 there, the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, that is the year that the king of Assyria died. That is the year that the once mighty empire of Assyria started to unravel. That is the year that an enormous power vacuum opened up in the ancient Near East as a declining Assyria and a rising Egypt and an ambitious Babylon all started to arm wrestle with each other to be the next world superpower. And Israel, you see, were like the meat stuck in the sandwich. And they they were swinging madly from one nation to the next, not really sure which nation to be friends with because to back the wrong nation would spell absolute disaster. And so wars were raged and thousands of people died and local economies collapsed and there were massive unrest and massive uncertainty and enormous anxiety and enormous hardships as once-in-a-lifetime events reverberated around the world. And look how it gets described in verses 15 and 16. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me. Now, in those verses, God is explaining that he's going to call together the the northern uh, kingdoms so as to come down and punish Israel. Now, it's a reference to Babylon, that God is going to use Babylon to punish Israel for forsaking him, for turning to other gods, for not appreciating how big he is. Now, over the next few weeks in our individual churches, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. For now, the simple thing to notice is that in a world of upheaval and and confusion, as nations were jostling each other for position, amongst it all, God was in fact working out a profound plan. At ground level, this was a bewildering moment in history. No one was sure what was going to happen next. No one was sure what the future might hold. But from the perspective of God... It had a place. Everything had a role. Everything had an objective to it. As Yahweh moved entire nations, nations who didn't even acknowledge him, nations who weren't even aware of his existence, nations with mind-boggling power and resources at their disposal, and yet God was moving and using them all to fulfil his purposes. Friends, that's a big God. We're dealing with a God so powerful that the world's superpowers, the world's stock markets, they are nothing to him. He can blow them out of the palm of his hand like chaff. 
God himself will point out in chapter 18 of the book that just like a potter can, you know, shape a clump of clay into anything he wants, Yahweh can shape the world's superpowers into anything he wants. That's a big God. But it doesn't end there. It's not just the moment of Jeremiah chapter 1. It's also the way the chapter describes the man, the man Jeremiah himself. Because verse 1 points out pretty well, humanly speaking, at this stage of his life, Jeremiah, he's just a teenage priest. He's growing up in a little backwater community of priests, a couple of kilometres out of Jerusalem. Hardly sounds all that spectacular. Although, to be fair, being a teenager doesn't disqualify anyone from doing great things. Evidently, at the age of 18, Spurgeon was preaching to thousands of people. But in Jeremiah 1, what's very clear is that Jeremiah's effectiveness as a prophet, it's anchored in the bigness of God. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. They are astonishing verses. Look at the words. I formed you. I knew you. I set you apart. I appointed you. In other words, Jeremiah, before you even existed, before you were a twinkle in your father's eyes, I knew you and I had plans for you that that are beyond your imagination. Friends, this is a very hands-on God. This is not a passive God who simply looks into the future to see what will happen. This is a God who brings the future to happen. He's forming, he knows, he sets apart, he appoints. And yes, other parts of the Bible even use the P word, he predestines. And not just the big things involving entire nations, it's the little personal things. Things to do with a lone teenager in a little backwater community in the fringe of society in, in Israel. And that brings great comfort to those who follow God. I mean, look at what God goes on to say to Jeremiah in verse 7. But the Lord said to me, don't, don't say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Don't, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord who moves nations as if they were nothing. I'm with you, declares the Lord who shapes history to his own desires. That's the God saying, I'm with you. It's a promise that gets repeated down in verse 19. It's a promise that gets repeated another four times throughout the book. In fact, I haven't checked it for myself. I should have. But I've been told it's a promise that gets repeated six, uh, 365 times throughout the Bible. Which would be really lovely if that's true because that's one for every day of the year. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I noticed a cricket bat was sold at auction recently for $145,000. Uh, the bat itself, I saw it on telly, it looked pretty shabby, really. Uh, it saw scratched pieces of tape hanging off. It looked like one of Stewie's bats out of our shed. And it sold for $145,000. Which, of course, if you saw the news story, you'd know it was because it was one of Don Bradman's bats. And so it wasn't the quality of the bat itself that made it so special. It was the owner of the bat that made it so special. 
And even a scruffy, shabby-looking bat could be involved in pretty great things in the hands of Don Bradman. How much more Jeremiah? How much more you and I? You may feel pretty shabby at times. Uh, You may not feel all that accomplished or very gifted. Man, who knows what you could be involved in, in the hands of God. But we need to press on. We've had a moment and a man. Look also at the message itself that God gives Jeremiah here. It's very neatly uh, summarised in verse 10. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now look, if you ever are after a single sentence summary of the entire book of Jeremiah, it's very hard to go past verse 10. This is what the whole book is about. It's about God tearing down and building up. It's about God uprooting and then planting. It it, it sort of works that the first half of the book, this is a gross oversimplification, but it sort of works that in the first half of the book, God chiefly explains that he's going to tear down Israel because of her ungodliness. But then in the second half of the book, God goes on to explain how he then intends to plant and build up a new people of God in Israel's place, a people who will serve him with a sincere heart, a people who will be led by God's own shepherd. No prizes for guessing who the shepherd turns out to be. But tearing down, building up, that's pretty much the message of Jeremiah to a T. But it's not so much the content of the message that chapter 1 is concerned with, it's the inevitability of the message, the authority behind the message. Because that's what God goes on to explain to Jeremiah in those couple of visions that he gives him. There's a vision in verse 11 where Jeremiah sees an almond tree. It's a bit of a word play. Uh, The Hebrew word for almond is very similar to the Hebrew word for watching. That's because the almond tree is one of the first trees to flower in spring. It watches over all the other trees in that sense. And the lesson for Jeremiah is that God himself will keep watch to make sure that what he says will happen. Verse 12, I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. You won't catch him napping. A second vision. Verse 13 to 15, Jeremiah sees a boiling pot tilting from the north. It's again that reference to Babylon. It's the news that Babylon will be the nation that will spell destruction for Israel, which at the time was a bit of a surprise. A lot of the kings, they were backing Egypt to be the next big thing, Uh, Egypt from the south. God says, no, it's going to be Babylon from the north. They're the ones who are going to conquer you. And God's point to Jeremiah is basically accept it, deal with it, declare it. Verse 17, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, don't be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. And I want you to notice the authority that oozes out of those sorts of verses. These two visions, really, they are drumming home the lesson to Jeremiah that, that behind this message of tearing down and building up, behind this message is a very, very big God. This is not a God who's taking a punt on what the future might hold. This is not a God who's asking or suggesting things to Jeremiah. This is a God who is watching to make sure that the future will be exactly as he has determined. This is a God who commands and summons 
and pronounces. This is a God who plans and appoints and sets apart individuals before they're even conceived. This is a God who's moulding entire nations to do his will, whether they're aware of it or not. This is a God whose word and message is absolutely certain and assured and inescapable, whether you like it or not. Friends, this is a big God. This is a God who is effectively saying to Jeremiah, I'm God, you're not. So brace yourself for that. Get yourself ready and do what I command or I will terrify you. And can I gently ask, is this the God you're worshipping? Or have you perhaps got, I don't know, an easier God in mind? A smaller God in mind? Hope not. Because any other God, it's not the true one. And anyway, a God, the dimensions of the one described in this chapter, a God of this scope and power and dominion, this God that absolutely nothing comes close to comparing to, he can deliver enormous hope. Enormous security. Think about it. When a God who moves entire nations, when the God who watches over his word to make sure that it will be fulfilled, when that God says, I love you so much that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. When that God says, I forgive you. When that God says, I'll remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. When that God talks about forgiveness and rest for the soul and freedom and comfort for the weary. Friends, when a God that big says stuff like that, that's a big deal. And this morning, Celebration Sunday, it's good to remind each other of that. Because the bigness that we see of God in these verses, they should help us to see the bigness of the things that we have been hearing about this morning. That as we have heard about growth groups and prayer groups and outreach events and people intentionally planning their time so as to tell others about Jesus, as we've heard about CLAG and kids' spots in evening church and river baptisms and men's breakfasts and women's retreats and connecting to build, Bible-reaching guides, Grace, just getting to church. Friends, these are not small things. For ours is a very big God. And to be able to start this morning by singing that we are his people. I mean, for that to be true, think about who the he is. We are only one chapter in. And already Jeremiah has shown us that the he... The he is the true and living God who speaks and forms and knows and sets apart 
and appoints and commands and tears down and builds up and watches over and summons and pronounces and who rescues and who says to those whom he loves, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Friends, being a Christian may be many, many things. It is never small. For brothers and sisters, we have a very big God. Can you believe it? We get to be his people. Praise Jesus for that.